Hello and welcome back to the UFO and Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Rick Black, and this has to be the hottest week that I've ever experienced. I don't know if I told you, but I'm here in Central Florida, and yesterday the heat index was 116. Charlie, the Black Lab, sitting here on the floor, and I would really like to take her out for a walk, but I'm afraid she would burst into flame. I wonder what the electric bill is going to be this month. I hope it's cooler where you are, and let's get to fall. I know you're not here for the weather, so I'll get started on today's episode. The Rendlesham Forest Incident, also known as Britain's Roswell. Beginning on December 26, 1980, at 2.50 a.m. local time, there were encounters that occurred over three nights in two bases, RAF Woodbridge and Bentwater Air Force Base. These twin bases, located near the Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk, England, 95 miles northwest of London, were NATO's largest air base in Europe and had, in their weapon storage areas, tactical nuclear weapons. We've run into this before. At Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana, at Roswell they had nuclear weapons, Pease Air Force Base in New Hampshire, where Betty and Barney Hill had their encounter. So it seems that they have an interest in our nuclear programs. I would consider this strong evidence supporting the idea that UFOs exist. On the first of the three nights, Airman John Burroughs was on patrol. He and another airman were driving around just talking to each other. They were going down the east gate by the control tower when one of them saw something strange. He said, did you see that? No, it's in the forest. So they went down there. John opened up the gate and they took off down the road. They went all the way to the end of the road. They made a U-turn in the vehicle and John got out to see if he could hear anything and figure out what it was. He had an uneasy feeling about this whole thing as he walked forward into the forest. He radios the desk sergeant and tells him that there's something strange near the back gate. They send security supervisor Jim Penniston to the site. Penniston drives down there, gets out of his vehicle, and looks out in the forest at all the strange lights. Then they went out into the forest to see if they could figure it out. There were three of them, Penniston, Burroughs, and Airman Ed Cabansack. In some of the reading, it was reported that they thought that a plane had crashed. Jim Penniston had worked security duties for the Strategic Air Command in the 1970s. He was a flight security controller for Minutemen ICBMs at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana, and in December of 1980, Jim was a sea flight security advisor for flight operations between RAF Bentwaters. He investigated plane crashes. He was very experienced with plane crashes. He would be able to tell the plane crash from a strange light that landed in the forest. So here they go. Jim, Ed, and John, who, by the way, didn't have their weapons with them. They go into the dark forest to investigate a strange light. That's a little creepy. I don't know if I would do it alone. They're chasing these lights. John saw a large orange oval-shaped light and some smaller white lights. Some of the smaller ones were green and blue. The men were in line formation, spread out with Penniston in the front and Ed in the rear. John and Jim thought that Ed would stay in back of the truck because the radio signal was so bad. All they were getting was static. 
So they had Ed stay at the truck in the hope that he would get a better signal with command. Ed thinks he was with Jim and John. That's weird. So anyway, they're chasing these lights when all of a sudden the lights got brighter. According to John, the men hit the ground. Then the lights dimmed, rose up above the trees, and flew off at incredible speed. Jim said that he didn't know of any man-made craft that could move like that, to move so fast that it almost seemed to disappear. John had a physical reaction to the event. Immediately after the incident, he didn't feel so good. He felt tired for no reason. He started having some throat problems and some vision problems, and at one point his whole mouth turned white. His gums had turned white. John states very clearly that he didn't see a metallic craft. He only saw the lights. However, according to other witnesses, he did see a metallic craft and either jumped up on the UFO or rose in a beam of light. Strange, right? When they got back to their vehicle, the local police were there and other men from the base were there, and Jim and John were told that command had lost contact with them for 45 minutes. They had seen something in the beam of one of the lights, like a human, and they thought that they'd lost John. On top of that, both Burroughs and Penniston had 45 minutes of missing time. Both of their watches were off by 45 minutes. According to Linda Moulton Howe, John's conscious memory had been blocked about what happened to him on two different nights. First after midnight on December 26th and then two nights later, around 4 a.m. on December 28, 1980. John was confused by the airbase rumors that he jumped up on a UFO because he could not clearly remember what happened when he was near the UFO either night. So on November 11, 1988, years later, John has a hypnosis session at the home of Kurt Brubaker in Los Angeles. During the session, John is talking real fast. It's like he's reliving the event. He's repeating what the others are saying to him during the event. Chasing the light, watching the light go through the trees, the pulsing light making it hard for him to determine the size of the craft. Then, after the craft is gone and they're walking back, they're seeing things they didn't notice when they went out, like crossing a stream. They had no memory of the stream when they went out. Watching the videos of John under hypnosis is really creepy. I'm convinced that hypnosis works and that John is really under, but I have a problem with the idea of regressive hypnosis. If you've been listening to me, you know how I feel about hypnosis. It's just too easy to plant false memories into the subject. John had heard rumors that he had been lifted by a beam. Why wouldn't he subconsciously bring those memories out during hypnosis? The hypnosis session doesn't count as evidence for me, so let's move on. Airman John Burroughs did submit a handwritten statement on January 2nd, 1981, along with a sketch of the lights that he saw. There is no mention of contact or lost time in the statement. But both he and Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston were told to submit reports, but to leave out any mention of UFOs or other related unexplained details. Jim's story is a little different. Jim Penniston described lights becoming so bright that he could not see, and then dimming down so much that he could suddenly see a triangular black-shaped craft emerge out of the light. He estimated the craft as nine feet long, with a fin-like projection on the top of the triangle, 
that rose up to about six feet. On the right side of the craft, he observed raised symbols like Braille. Sergeant Penniston sketched the symbols in a notebook he normally used for plane crash investigations, and then he touched the symbols with the tip of his fingers. Penniston lost track of John for 45 minutes or so. He didn't know where John was. When Jim was near the craft, his mind was filled with numbers. He says, quote, It was like someone holding a picture up with zeros and ones right after another. End quote. He could see it in his mind's eye. He didn't have any idea what they meant. The next day, Jim felt compelled to write the numbers in his notebook. He filled 12 pages with zeros and ones. After he wrote them down, they left his head. Now I know from one of the first classes I took in college that a collection of ones and zeros is computer language, binary code. I used to be able to read or translate it, but that was a long time ago. But 30 years after Jim Penniston wrote all those ones and zeros, computer programmer Nick Siski decoded five of the 12 pages in Jim's notebook. Why didn't he decode all of it? I'm running into this kind of thing all the time. Something as obvious as this. There are 12 pages, but the computer programmer only decoded five. What the heck? Decode all of them. This is more than a little suspicious. It makes me question the whole thing. Were the other seven pages gibberish? Did they lose the other seven pages? Is any of this true? There was a message in those five pages. After decoding them, Siski found a message that read, Exploration Humanity, then some coordinates, and Continuous for Planetary Advance. The coordinates were off the coast, the west coast of Ireland. So what's off the west coast of Ireland? The Atlantic Ocean. And every once in a while, an island called High Brazil. Legend has it that there's a mysterious island off the coast of Ireland that is cloaked in mist. One day, every seven years, it is visible, but not reachable. It has appeared on maps as far back as 1375, and expeditions to find the island were launched in 1480 and 1481. In 1674, a Captain John Nisbet saw the island when he was traveling from France to Ireland, and that the island was inhabited by large black rabbits and a magician who lived alone in a stone castle. You can't make this stuff up. Or maybe you can. I think the binary code is the most interesting part of the Rendlesham story, but why didn't Siski decode the entire thing? Did he not have access to the whole notebook? Did he try to decode it, but it was somebody's grocery list? Were the other seven pages lost or destroyed? I got this part of the story from an episode of Ancient Aliens, which, by the way, is so fun to watch. They didn't mention why Siski only decoded five pages. It reminds me of a time I was on jury duty. The alleged bad guy went into a tuck shop, was measured for a tux, then committed the crime. As a juror, I only needed to compare the measurement card with the guy's measurements. With the rest of the prosecution's presentation, that would have been enough evidence to convict him. But the measurement card was not introduced into evidence. Why not? Did it not match the suspect? 
Did the police lose it? Nobody seemed to want to even mention it. That was so frustrating. We ended up voting not guilty, but I know he did it. The prosecution had the burden to prove it, but they didn't. All they needed was that card. They talked about it. Anyway, moving on. The next day, or should I say later that same day when it was light outside, they went back and noted depressions on the ground where Penniston had seen the craft. There were three triangle-shaped depressions that formed a triangle about nine feet across. There were also scorch marks on the ground and on the trees at certain height. They took pictures and samples, and the next day, the base's deputy commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt, investigated. He took a Geiger counter and took measurements of the scorch marks and notes that the gamma rays were slightly elevated, about the same radiation as one-third of a chest x-ray. I should note that the Geiger counter that he used was designed to detect high levels of radiation and is not as sensitive to the lower levels. On the second night, December 27th, Airman Lori Bowens from the gate reports seeing a fiery orange light. Later, Bowens hears D-Flight Shift Commander Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin yelling and crying on the military radio for help from Master Sergeant Robert Ball. She also knew that Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt was alerted about Lieutenant Tamplin's emotional breakdown. There are two stories about this event. One is that Tamplin and Ball went out to investigate, and an orange light entered Tamplin's Jeep that caused her distress. The other is that there was a large orange orb in the road, and it caused Tamplin to swerve into a ditch, putting her Jeep on its side, and that she fired her weapon at the light. During this time period, the 70s and the 80s, Many airmen witnessed lights at the base all the time, but they didn't report them because they didn't want the headache that it would bring. One of these non-reported lights was seen hovering near the gate and had a beam of light shining toward the ground where the nukes were stored. Airman Doc Rhodes saw one and didn't report it because when he first arrived at the base, he was told about the lights and that if he saw one to not report it, it would cause trouble. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. In the same hours that all of this is occurring on the base, John Burroughs wakes up in a state of extreme agitation. He had a strong feeling that the lights were back. Even off-duty, he felt the need to see the lights again. He didn't know anything about what was happening with Lieutenant Tamplin or Ball or Halt. He was so shaken that he got a ride from where he was staying back to the base. A desk sergeant named O'Brien was on duty, and Burroughs asked him what was happening in Rendlesham Forest. He was told that D-Flight Shift Commander Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin was relieved of her duty because a light had entered her vehicle in the forest. 
The light scared the lieutenant into panicking and crying during her radio communications. The assumption is that she had gone into the forest with D-Flight Master Sergeant Robert Ball to investigate Lori Bowen's fiery sphere report. And when John Burroughs learned that the D-Flight shift commander encountered the light in her vehicle and it terrified her, he was more determined than ever to get back to Rendlesham Forest that night. At about 4 a.m., Burroughs was permitted to go back into the forest with Staff Sergeant Adrian Bastenza. He joins Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt's investigation in Rendlesham Forest after midnight on December 28th. There are several other men with them. They see the lights. The lights were making contact with Burroughs in his mind. Halt and Adrian and John follow the light into the field while the others hang back. Halt tells John he wants him to go because he thinks he can get them closer. Halt tells John that he has a tape recorder and he's taping everything. So they walked forward, and there they were, three blue lights. They believed the lights were speaking to them, inside their heads. Under hypnosis, John was asked if there were life forms inside the lights, and John responded that the light was the life form. So now they're in the farmer's field, moving toward the lights. Adrian falls down next to John, and John only remembers getting close to the lights and remembering nothing else. Later, Adrian told John that the light had pushed him to the ground and then enveloped John. John had no memory of what happened when he was near the light. Since then, he's had nightmares. He can't sleep well. This experience had really affected his mental health. To help with this, John went to hypnotherapy again in 2008. There seems to be a lot of regressive hypnotherapy in the whole UFO phenomenon. Okay. There's a tower on the base, 50 feet above the ground, and it gives the person in the tower a 360-degree view of the surrounding area. Its purpose was to continuously observe the bunkers that housed the nuclear arms, the Weapons Storage Area, or WSA. On the night that the men followed the light into the farmer's field, from the WSA alarm station watchtower, Delta Flight Security Chief Sergeant Rick Bobo witnessed a glowing red orb hovering in the area for over two hours. This large red light would periodically emit smaller white lights down into Rendlesham Forest. At least twice, Sergeant Bobo called Central Security Control. He was told that the situation was under control because there was an investigation in the forest under the direction of Lieutenant Colonel Halt. Later, on January 13, 1981, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt submitted a report on the events of those three nights. I'll read it to you now. It reads, quote, 1. Early in the morning of 27 December 80, approximately 0300 hours, two USAF security police patrolmen saw unusual lights outside the bat gate at RAF Woodbridge. Thinking an aircraft might have crashed or been forced down, they called for permission to go outside the gate to investigate. The on-duty flight chief responded and allowed three patrolmen to proceed on foot. The individuals reported seeing a strange glowing object in the forest. The object was described as being metallic in appearance and triangular in shape, 
approximately 2 to 3 meters across the base and approximately 2 meters high. It illuminated the entire forest with a white light. The object itself had a pulsing red light on top and a bank of blue lights underneath. The object was hovering or on legs. As the patrolman approached the object, it maneuvered through the trees and disappeared. At this time, the animals on a nearby farm went into a frenzy. The object was briefly sighted approximately one hour later near the back gate. 2. The next day, three depressions, one and a half inch deep and seven inches in diameter, were found where the object had been sighted on the ground. The following night, 29 December 80, the area was checked for radiation. Beta gamma readings of 0.1 Mullerinkin were recorded with peak readings in the three depressions and near the center of the triangle formed by the depressions. A nearby tree had a moderate 0.05 to 0.07 readings on the side of the tree toward the depressions. 3. Later in the night, a red, sun-like light was seen through the trees. It moved about and pulsed. At one point, it appeared to throw off glowing particles and then broke into five separate white objects and then disappeared. Immediately thereafter, three star-like objects were noticed in the sky, two objects to the north and one to the south, all of which were about 10 degrees off the horizon. The object moved rapidly in sharp angular movements and displayed red, green, and blue lights. The objects to the north appeared to be elliptical through an 812 power lens. They then turned to full circles. The objects to the north remained in the sky for one hour or more. The object to the south was visible for two or three hours and beamed down a stream of light from time to time. Numerous individuals, including the undersigned, witnessed the activities in paragraphs two and three. Signed, Charles I. Halt, Lieutenant Colonel, USAF, Deputy Base Commander. End quote. The dates in the report actually don't match the dates of the events. They are off by one. Halt had a tape recorder with him during the investigation and recorded the readings from the Geiger counter and when they saw the lights from the farmer's field. I'll play a little of that for you now. 305, we see strange uh, strobe-like flashes to the uh, rather sporadic, but there's definitely something, uh, some kind of phenomenal. 305, at about uh, 10 degrees horizon, uh, directly north, we've got two strange objects. Uh, half moon shape, dancing about with colored lights on them. That, uh, gets to be about five to ten miles out, maybe less. The half moons now turn into full circles. There's one of those, uh, eclipse or something there for a minute or two. Zero three fifteen, now we've got an object about ten degrees directly south, ten degrees off the horizon. And the ones in the north are moving, one's moving away from us. Moving out fast.
The skeptics will say that the lights they were seeing were from the Orfordness Lighthouse. It was in the same direction that they were looking at. There was a shield on the lighthouse to keep the lights from shining on neighborhoods, but it didn't cover the forest. Holt mentioned on the tape that the light pulsed every five seconds, which is the exact flash rate of the Orfordness Lighthouse. And on the colonel's tapes, he never mentions the lighthouse. He doesn't say, There are some strange lights over there, and by the way, there's the lighthouse. Some people also say that at the time of the event, the lighthouse was not visible because of the trees. Another event that happened that could be confused with the lights was on Christmas Eve at 9.20 p.m. The booster stage of a Russian satellite, Cosmos 749, re-entered the atmosphere and slowly disintegrated over Suffolk, England. It was thought that it landed in the North Sea about 20 miles from Rendlesham. It was a spectacular light show, one large fireball with pieces breaking off and trailing behind. It was widely reported in the news, and many people that witnessed it referred to them as the Christmas lights. There is also the possibility that it was a hoax perpetrated by the SAS as revenge from a previous encounter with USAF Bentwater. The USAF had recently upgraded their radar and detected the black parachutes of the SAS men as they descended on the base. The SAS troops were interrogated and beaten up, and the ultimate insult that they were called unidentified aliens. So, what do you think? Is it believable? Remember, believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. If you like the show... I would like to encourage you to help support the show. You can help me out with just $3 a month. Just go to the website and click on support. I would really appreciate the help and would be happy to give you a shout out. Do you have a story that you'd like to share? Is there a UFO story that you'd like for me to look into? Just send me an email at ufoandalienspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Rick Black, and I'll talk to you next time.